Hey, welcome to the Life Church Green Bay podcast. It's our mission to lead the way in bringing the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We are so glad that you're here. If this is your first time joining us, would you connect with us? We want to do life with you. And there are so many ways we can do that from wherever you are in the world. You can get connected with us and other Jesus people in one of our Facebook groups by joining us for an online service every Sunday or connecting with people through life groups and pocket churches. To learn how to get connected and find your pocket, please go to lifechurchgreenbay.com. Again, so glad you're here with us today. Here's this week's message. Hey friends, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you're not in a place where you have access to a traditional Bible, you can open up the YouVersion app, or it's also called the Bible app, and all the notes and scriptures, those have already been uploaded. Wherever it is that you're watching us from, I love you, and I am so glad that you're a part of our family. Becoming Jesus, people. Uh, We've spent the past month and a half talking about that, but what does that even mean? Like, what is a Jesus person? Well, throughout time, People who follow or represent Jesus have bore different names. The church, the brethren, the saints, Nazarenes, believers, Christ followers, Jesus followers, followers of the way, the way, crusaders, and of course, Christians. And all of those names have had certain aspects and elements attached to them, some good, and some bad. So years ago here at Life Church, we started calling ourselves just Jesus people. People who are doing our best to be a good representation and reflection of Jesus. And so we've spent the past six weeks talking about some foundational scriptures that show us how to do that, how to become Jesus people. We've looked at the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5. My friend Pastor Scott and I, we split that one up because it's so robust. It comes from the great Sermon on the Mount. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5. Pastor Dallas talked about Peter's list of the characteristics of an effective and productive life from 2 Peter chapter 1. And then I'm going to talk about Paul's definition and description of love from 1 Corinthians 13. That's what I'm going to talk about today, that last one in part six of our series, Becoming Jesus People. Let's pray. God, we love you. Man, talking about love, it just, it almost makes me just pause and reflect on this idea of what that is, that sometimes we so flippantly can say those words. And so today, when I say, I love you, God, I pray that that wouldn't just resonate from my diaphragm, but that it would radiate from my heart, that it wouldn't just be words spoken in a message, but it would be words lived through my life, that the things that I say, the things that I do, the the meditations of my heart, that they would be pleasing unto you. I pray that my friends who are on the other side of this screen, that their lives would resonate and radiate the true love that can only be given to you and through you. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is, it's an interesting book. On the run for his life, Paul landed in Ephesus where he'd dictate what would be the longest letter to that point in his career. 
Uh, a letter that, quite honestly, as far as he knew, in the light of the persecution that he'd faced and foresaw that he might still face, could have been his last. So I think with that in mind, he decides not to pull any punches. Corinth was a mess. The church, it was in upheaval. There was massive division, and they were missing a golden opportunity to change their city, to change their culture. So, frustrated with their spiritual immaturity, Paul pressed them with the truth. And, and he begins his letter with love and gratitude. And he does that because gratitude is a great deterrent to frustration. Anytime that you live your life in frustration, it'll be helpful for you to focus on the things that you have to be thankful for. But he also understood that love isn't just compromise. Sometimes love requires confrontation. And so he says, I always thank God for you because of the grace God has given to you in Jesus that you were enriched in him in every way and all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Jesus, it was confirmed among you so that you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He'll also strengthen you to the end so that you'll be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, he's faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus our Lord. Uh, once he had established his love and gratitude for them though, man, he doesn't cut any corners and he gets into the purpose of this letter, which is correction. Having heard about the division in the church caused by by these factions that were created out of people's loyalties to certain people, some to him, some to Apollos, other people to Peter. And then there was this group of outliers who had no allegiance to anyone, definitely not to any apostle. And so he says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I mean, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Like, guys, don't get confused by this, he's saying. This isn't about me. This isn't about Apollos. It's not about Peter. For Christ, he didn't even send us to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, even though of all the people who could have stood on or depended upon his wisdom and intellect, it was Paul. But Paul knew that it wasn't about his wisdom. It wasn't about his intellect. It wasn't about his knowledge. It wasn't about his opinion. He understood that by doing that, by leaning on those things, the cross of Christ, it would have been emptied of its power. And so Paul pressed the point and he emphasized the stark contrast between the world's philosophies, which seek goodness by the application of human thought and effort, and the gospel, which philosophy and common sense both regarded as ludicrous. He says, God in his wisdom made it impossible for men to know him by means of their own wisdom. Instead, God decided to save those who believe by the means of this foolish message that we preach. Jews, they want miracles for proof and Greeks, they're looking for wisdom. As for us, we proclaim Christ on the cross, a message that is offensive to the Jews and nonsense to the Gentiles. But for those whom God called, both Jews and Gentiles, this message is Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God, it's stronger. And by the time Paul had 
unfolded this long argument, he'd made it really plain that no man could discover God by the way of wisdom, by the way of knowledge, by the way of opinion, by the way of intellect. And I think even if he'd known what marvels of knowledge would emerge in the next 2,000 years, that, that the human mind and anatomy were infinitely complex and that the universe is so vast that the earth spins as just a mere speck in space, he'd have said the very same thing. He'd have considered it, I think, totally ironic that the more man discovered the insignificance of our planet, the more highly we would rate ourselves convincing ourselves that we can explain everything without any reference to God whatsoever. And so he would remind them and ultimately us, we know nothing. And so he forged on. The wisdom we speak is the wisdom of God, secret, hidden, which God prepared for our glory before time began, which none of the rulers of this age has known, for if they'd known, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. The man who's merely natural, he, he doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're ridiculous to him, and he's not able to know them because they can only be understood by a spiritual man. Then he quotes the great prophet Isaiah, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who can instruct him? And then he reminds them, we have the mind of Christ. Don't get lost in that. Don't get lost in the fact that some people act like they know more than you or that they have a superior mindset or superior knowledge. You and I. We have the mind of Christ. And knowing that the Corinthians would read this letter out loud to a crowd, he takes the opportunity to dispose of the question of who it is that they should be loyal to by showing them that apostles, messengers, they're just spokesmen. They're just servants. He, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gave the increase. None of you should be proud of one man and despise the other. I mean, who made you superior to others? And guys, that verse, it reminds me of, of the culture that we're in right now, the debates that we have going on right now in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a resurgence, in the midst of the uprising of a new strain, in the midst of masks and no masks, vaccines and no vaccines, in the midst of the separation that all of that is creating in the opportunity that the enemy has grabbed within the last 18 months to drive a wedge in between people, this massive division that all of these things are creating both in our culture and in the church. And like Paul, I'm not saying all this to make you ashamed. I just wanna bring you my dearest children to your senses for, for though you have countless teachers, mm, you don't have many fathers. He's saying, then, like now, you have all kinds of instruction. You have all kinds of theories. You have all kinds of information. I mean, now even more than then with the 24-hour news cycle and the ticker tape that goes down the bottom of the screen every time we turn on a blue or a red channel. It doesn't matter what it is. There's all these differing opinions and whatever blog it is you're reading or whatever thing it is that you're listening to, suddenly you are confused. You are divided. And he's saying, you have all sorts of instruction. You have all sorts of theories. You have all sorts of talking heads in your ear, but you don't have many men who love you and are willing to discipline you. You don't have many men who will speak the truth in love. And so he assumes that role. And he spends this letter confronting arrogance and political posturing, spiritual abuse and false religions. He 
does spiritual immorality and the distortion of love that was so rampant in that culture. And he says, I'm saying this because I want to help you. Like, I'm not trying to put restrictions on you. Instead, I want you to do what's right and proper and give yourselves completely to the Lord's service without reservation. He reminds them that he's not anxious for his own advantage, but for the advantage of everyone else so that they might be saved. He brings them back to unity, saying, some of you are Jews, I get it. Some of you are Gentiles, some of you are slaves, and some of you are free. And some of the Jews, they thought that they were superior to the Gentiles. And some of the Gentiles thought that they were superior to some of the Jews. But we've all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share that same spirit. And he's saying, even though we're different parts of the body, we all have a necessary role, and we all have individual gifts, whether that be wisdom or knowledge, faith or healing, miracles or prophecy, speaking in tongues or interpreting tongues. We're all different, but we all need each other. And so if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. But if one part of the body flourishes, then we all flourish. So let's treat each other with love and gratitude, grace and encouragement. And he brings it back to love because he wanted to dispel the view of love that had taken over Corinth and quite frankly has taken over our society, has taken over our culture, a love that had been distorted, a love that was carnal, fleshly, self-seeking, self-serving. The city and our culture was obsessed with eros, a purely sensual, sexual love. But Paul, he wanted to leave them with a true understanding of that higher, peculiar love that was unique to Jesus' people, that, that was the draw, that was the attraction to Jesus and a life changed by and dedicated to him, that was the first foundational piece to the fruit of the Spirit, an agape love. If he could just convey the meaning of this kind of love, they'd have an example to aim at, a, a formula from which to live. And so he said, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor, if I give my body over to hardship so that I can boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. And I think he leaned back and he contemplated, how is it that I describe this love that is unique to these people who have dedicated their lives, who have centered their lives around who Jesus really was? And I think he thought of the many qualities that he had experienced in Jesus, that Jesus, he was patient and kind, never jealous, not possessive. He, he envied no one. He wasn't boastful or anxious to impress. He, he was never arrogant, proud, rude, or discourteous. He didn't insist on his own way, pursue selfish advantage, or claim his own rights. I mean, that's evidenced in his willingness to receive the cross. He wasn't touchy, irritable, or quick to take offense. He didn't brood on injuries, bear a grudge, show resentment, gloat over people's sins, or condone injustice. Instead, he loved goodness. He always took part in the truth. He, he was slow to expose and could overlook people's faults. There was no limit to his endurance, no end to his willingness to trust, and no diminishing his hope. And, and with the face of that perfect love filling his mind, Paul knew 
the secret to becoming Jesus, people, had just surfaced. And so I picture that he surged forward and he resumed dictating, delivering the best known of all of his works. He said, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It's not rude, it's not self-seeking, easily angered. It doesn't keep any record of wrong. Love takes no pleasure in evil, but instead it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and it never fails. I, I remember when I was writing a message in our series, Defining the Church, I was drawn to read this scripture in the King James Version. I had read it hundreds of times, literally. I'd used it in weddings, I'd used it in sermons, and I'd never read it in the old school classic King James Version. And when I read it, mm, it just, it popped. It says, charity suffereth long. It's kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It's not puffed up. And as I read that, I thought, I wonder why they changed the word love to charity. And so I dug and I, I did a little study and found that the translators made the switch because the word charity encapsulated any loving action that didn't depend on the love being returned. <laughs> and even just this week, it, it hit me, it resonated in me that that's it. That's what it takes to become a Jesus person. Loving people with a love that doesn't depend on them loving me back. A love that's patient and kind, that doesn't envy or boast, that isn't proud, rude, self-seeking, or easily angered, that doesn't keep record of wrongs or take pleasure in evil, but instead rejoices in the truth, that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, but most importantly, that never, ever fails. He's never failed me. He's never left me. He's never forsaken me. And I think if you look at the annals of your life with honesty, you'll realize that there are times you left him, but he has never left you. He has never failed you. And guys, this is a love that may be more necessary now than it's ever been because with all of the uncertainty and unrest that we're under, it's urgent that we recognize and realize we're all different, but we all need each other. If one of us suffers, we all suffer, but if one of us flourishes, we all flourish. And so with all of the disdain, with all of the disagreement that's going on in our culture, what if we just treated each other with love? What if we just treated each other with gratitude, grace, and encouragement? And so as we come to the end of this series, I wonder, can you do that? More importantly, I wonder, will you do that? Because I know you can. I know that you have the ability to do it. Every single one of us can do it. But the question is whether or not we will. I hope you will, because if we don't, we're missing a golden opportunity to change our city, to change our culture by becoming Jesus people. Would you close your eyes? You know, salvation, as we call it in the church, at the end of the day, all it is is becoming a Jesus person, a person who looks less like themselves and more like Jesus, a person who recognizes that there is an emptiness in them, there is a void in them that cannot be filled by anything other than him. And so I wonder if you've been feeling that, particularly in the last 18 months, I think that there's been people who have been feeling this uncertainty, this void within themselves, and they thought maybe it was because they couldn't go to the store without a mask on, or they couldn't go to the store without being forced to choose whether they're gonna be stuck or not. But really what it is, 
It is a hole in you that can only be filled by Jesus. And so today, I want to give the opportunity for you to do that, to fill that void. And it's very easy. It's difficult, but it's a simple process. And so what we have to do is admit that we're a sinner, like we all are, and recognize that Jesus can change that. And so here's how we're going to do that today. I'm going to say a few lines in a prayer, and if you repeat those lines and you mean them in your heart, the Bible says you will be saved. You will become a Jesus person. And so if you want to do that, would you say this after me? Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. There's a hole. There's a void inside of me. And I know that only you can fill it, but I know that you will. So will you do that? Will you forgive me of my sins? Cleanse me of unrighteousness. Come into my life. Make me different. Make me new. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, I'm so proud of you, so, so excited for that, so grateful that you're now part of our spiritual family and would love the opportunity to connect with you, to follow up with you. So if you just send us a message that said you decided to follow Jesus, to become a Jesus person today, we would love the opportunity to follow up with you. But maybe you're a Jesus guy or you're a Jesus girl and you're watching this and you say, Sean, I'm going to heaven, but you've been loving with limits. If that's you, I want to pray that you can love with no expectation. You can love without needing someone to give it back to you in return. And so Father, for my friends who are on this, who have been loving conditionally, they've been loving with exception, help us to break down that barrier and to love like you with that agape love that only comes through Jesus. In your name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us this week. Did you know we have discussion questions for each message? You can download them and talk it over with your friends and family. Go to lifechurchgreenbay.com to download today.